Well, if you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 8. We're in Hebrews 8 this morning, and we're going to look at the entirety of the chapter, just 13 verses. And one of the most important chapters in the Bible, there are chapters, though God didn't inspire chapter divisions, there are sections of books that are more important than other sections of books. All of God's Word is important, but it's not all equally important. And Hebrews 8 is one of those chapters that we want to know, that we want our minds and wills to be um, subjected to and conformed by. And so um, I know you're going to find it helpful to have a copy of Scripture open. If you're using the Church Bible, you'll find this on page 1005. And before I do read Hebrews 8, let's go to the Lord again in prayer and ask for his blessing on the preaching of his word. Father, we thank you that every word in the Bible has been breathed out by you and that it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that the man and the woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We pray, O God, that you would complete us and equip us, that you would make us whole in Christ, that what is lacking would be supplied to us through the grace and the mercy of our Lord Jesus and through his priesthood for us. We thank you, O God, that we can come this morning and that we can listen and hear. We pray that you would make us to hear. Speak, Lord Jesus, for your servants are listening. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 8, the writer of Hebrews, in the middle of this discussion on the priesthood of Jesus, says, now the point, or the main point, in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant. That I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, 
If confession is good for the soul, then I have a confession to make. When I think about this church plant, I often think about all the things that we lack. I tend to fixate on all the things that we don't have, especially when I compare what we have in this church plant with what other more established churches, faster growing churches, churches with more money, churches with more attention seem to have. And that can become discouraging and and. When you look out and you begin to compare, you can become discouraged, and then God brings us back to the scriptures. And what God tells us is that everything that every true church, every church full of believers in Jesus Christ has, is true of every church across the board. And one of those things that we don't have here at New Covenant that I often think about is we don't have a worship leader. We don't have someone who stands up here and and leads you in worship. You have me and my horrible voice every week bellowing out and leading you in worship in in a feeble attempt, hoping that at some point you're going to outsing me. And as I think about this and as I compare this church with other churches and I notice how many churches, when you go to their website, prominent on that website is we have a really awesome worship leader. Well, you know what? We actually do have a worship leader here at New Covenant. His name is Jesus, and he's the best worship leader in the universe. And what the writer of Hebrews tells us is that he is the worship leader, that actually there's no such thing as a worship leader in the New Covenant apart from Jesus Christ because our worship is heavenly worship. What we're doing right now in this rented facility is not something earthly. It's not something that is is merely earthly. It's not something that's just happening like a concert happens or something else on an earthly plane happens, but that what is happening is right now in our hearts, we ought to be being lifted up into the heavenly worship where the worship leader Jesus Christ stands. And you'll notice here, the writer of Hebrews tells us, this is the main point. This is the main point. We have a minister in the sanctuary in Jesus. We have a heavenly worship leader. Now, I think that that's helpful to us because we tend to think, a lot of us, and, and I want to read a quote to you from Sinclair Ferguson I found very helpful. He, he said, Do you not know how foolish sometimes we are? We all believe as Christian people that we have no hope of getting into heaven apart from Jesus Christ as our mediator, but somewhere or another, we start thinking that our worship is acceptable on its own grounds. That happens when we start to talk about what we do in our worship service. Well, we do this. We worship this way. We use these elements. We do these forms. We kneel in our church. We do this in our liturgy. And when we start to fixate on all of those things, we start to fall into the trap of thinking somehow we don't need Jesus Christ to make our worship acceptable. And the point of the book of Hebrews, the main point, is that you need Jesus Christ in his unfinished work. In his un- this is what John Owen says. We need Christ in his finished work on the cross, and we need him in his unfinished work right now at the right hand of the throne of God, leading his people in worship. And notice that that's what the writer says again. Now, this is the main point in which we are saying this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister of the holy places. 
We're going to see this morning two things. First, we're going to see that we have a better mediator in Jesus. We have a a better worship leader, one who mediates for our worship in heaven. And we have a better covenant. We are in a better covenant with God because it's built on better promises. And so notice that this chapter divides into those two things. And the writer of Hebrews tells us here at the outset, as as I've already noted, that, that this is the main point. Now, that's important because you can listen to a lot of sermons and never get the main point. A lot of ministers fail to give you the main point. They overload you with information. They overload you with stories. They overload you with application. They overload you with them. And they never give you the main point. And actually, when we read the scriptures, a lot of times, it's very hard to discern the main point of a book. We have to dig. We have to meditate. We have to say, what is the Apostle Paul saying? What is the main point of this? What does this mean? And and so it's helpful, isn't it, when... The writer here tells us in verse 1, now, this is the main point. In one sense, it's not just the main point of the book of Hebrews, it's the main point of the Bible. I want you to get that this morning. In one sense, it's not just the main point of the book of Hebrews, it is the main point of the Bible that Jesus Christ is the glorious, everlasting high priest the worship leader of his church, the mediator between God and man, the only mediator, the only one who brings you to God, the only one who makes you acceptable, the only one who makes your worship acceptable, the only one who can represent you before God, and the only one who can secure for you an everlasting covenant so that you can be secure in the house of God forever. That's the main point of the Bible. That's the main point of the book of Hebrews. And so the writer says, now this is the chief point. This is the main point of what we're saying. We have such a high priest. Now, we've just come off of that very theologically full section in which Jesus was contrasted with the Levitical priest, and we were told that he was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Very difficult, very long sermon last week. Very hard to explain. The writer actually tells them it was hard to explain. Now what he's going to do is not contrast Jesus with all of the Levitical priests, but he's going to contrast Jesus with the high priest. He's going to tell us that in the Old Testament, yes, there were all these priests, but there was one high priest. And the high priest did the most important work of going into the most holy place and offering for the people the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat, covering the transgressions of that law that stood against them and by which they were separated from God. And the high priest went in there, and when he did, God in this uh, glorious ceremony would come down several times in the Old Testament. He came down like a pillar of fire. Pretty sure that's where Lost got the smoke monster that was so ridiculous. But in the Old Testament, there was a pillar of fire that came down, and God was saying, I am coming to dwell with my people when the high priest does what he needs to do on the Day of Atonement. And yet, that high priest would go in, and he would offer that blood, and that was good news to the people when they knew that the priest was going in there with the blood that they needed to cover their sins by representation. But when he came out, it was no longer good news. He went in, and then he came out. The next year, he went in, and then he came out. And every time that high priest came out, the people were reminded that the work of redemption was not yet finished, that their sins were not yet forgiven, that they still needed 
atonement and sacrifice for sin. Every time that high priest came out, and what the writer of Hebrews is going to say is now in the new covenant, we have a better priest, a better mediator. He went into the heavenly temple. He sat down. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. The Bible doesn't tell us Jesus sat down because he's tired. I sit down because I get tired. I wanted to stay seated over there because of the breeze, because I'm tired. Jesus doesn't sit down because he's tired. He sits down because he finished the work of redemption. He went into the most holy place of heaven itself. He brought the blood of his own sacrifice into the most holy place, the true temple, the true tabernacle, and he sat down. And that ought to bring you the greatest measure of comfort that your savior and high priest sat down in the presence of God and he doesn't come out of the holy place. He doesn't come back out. The work is finished. The blood is sacrificed. The sacrifice is offered. The blood is sufficient. He sat down. Notice what he says. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. He is a king. He is a priest. He is there. Jesus has sat down for us. And then notice that he tells us more. He tells us, that he sat down at the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places. Now, as I've already said, we have a worship leader. We don't want to forget that our worship, what you're doing right now, is only acceptable to God if Jesus Christ is making it acceptable on your behalf, if you are coming in your souls to God by faith in worship. That's the only way it's acceptable. And what he says is that, uh, that Christ is the minister, I'm not the minister. I'm a minister, a little M, very frail, very sinful, very weak minister. He is the minister. You have a minister in Jesus Christ. You have a pastor in Jesus Christ. You have a worship leader in Jesus who the writer told us in the verses at the end of chapter 7 is holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. And that has sat down, having finished the work of redemption. And that he is your pastor, he is the shepherd of your souls, he is the mediator ever living to intercede for you. You know, we talked about this last week. I don't think we adequately grasp what it means to rely on the unfinished work of Jesus in our Christian life. Now, believing in Jesus is not just believing that this guy existed back in time and that he hung on a cross, and that he, he said that he came to save people from their sins, and that he was buried, his body was then buried, and that he rose, and then he disappeared, and that somehow he doesn't exist anymore. He is in heaven representing his people. He's there representing you. He's there leading you in worship. He calls us to worship. He calls us into the presence of God. The only reason that God the Father accepts us is because he's accepted his Son, It's the only reason. And notice that the writer tells us he's a minister in the holy places. Now, this ought to confuse us because on Sunday we don't go to a temple. We don't don't have a religious building. In fact, there are great dangers in emphasizing a building. There's great dangers in churches emphasizing the architecture and the structure and the layout of a building because God hasn't given us that in the new covenant. He's told us that Christ has gone into the most holy place. And as a boy... My dad used to teach me that we shouldn't call the room in which we worship the sanctuary. I stand by that to this day. 
I call it the worship room. I feel really awkward because everybody else calls it the sanctuary. The sanctuary is heaven. Christ has gone into the true holy place. He has ascended into heaven. When his body was offered up on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn in two. The writer of Hebrews says that the veil of his flesh was torn and that he entered into the most holy place. And notice that we're told there he's a minister in the true tent that the Lord set up and not man. Now, what he's going to tell us is that the better mediator is in a better tabernacle and temple because at the end of the day, the the tabernacle was very temporal It moved around. It had to be broken down. God appointed men to set it up. Men had to carry all the pieces, all the instruments, all the things that were in that tabernacle, they had to carry with them. And then even when Solomon built the temple, they had to appoint all these artisans and they appointed stone workers and they appointed people to do all of those things. And then men would minister in there. And and what the writer of Hebrews says is, we don't do that anymore, but that there's a true tent a true tent, um, that that tent, that tabernacle was just a picture of. Now, John Owen, I think rightly, says that Jesus is the tabernacle. Uh, John 1, 14, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He is the most holy place. All Everything that went on in that tabernacle in the Old Testament, everything that went on in the temple is in Jesus. All those things were pointing to him. All of those things were preparing us for him. Even the fact that the tabernacle was covered with skin and that God dwelt in fleshed, in badger skin, was pointing us to the fact that God would dwell in fleshed in Jesus Christ. All of it. Every detail of that tabernacle and temple in some way corresponded to the person and the saving work of our Lord Jesus. Now, there are many people who say that's fanciful, and that's because they're earthly-minded, because all they can do is think on the earthly plane. You know, this was true of Israel in the old, old Covenant. I mean, this was why Israel didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't want Jesus to tell them that it was all about him. They didn't want the reality. They wanted, they wanted the, the, the model. They wanted the type. Um, notice what he says here. He says um, in verse 5, speaking about the priest on earth, they serve a, a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, a reflection Um, William Still, very helpfully talking about the sacrifices in the Old Testament, and when the priest would take them in to the temple, he says it was was a a cruel rehearsal of what would happen at the cross. Everything in the Old Testament that you read, it was a cruel and a crude rehearsal of what would happen at the cross. And so notice that the writer tells us that the old covenant priest and the problem with the Hebrews was they they were being tempted to go back to Judaism. They were being tempted to go back to earthly worship. They They were being tempted to go back to pomp and ceremony and shadows and types and to reject the entrance into the heavenly temple that they had in Jesus. They were ready to give it up and go back to the model, go back to the pattern, go back to the type. And notice what the writer says. He says, When Moses was about to put the tent up, God told him, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Now, the tabernacle was not a bad thing. The temple was not a bad thing. Um, it It was a model. When I was a boy, every Christmas, my dad would get out um, a large piece of plywood that he had built a train set on. 
And year after year, we would add things to that set. It was one of my favorite things as a kid. My dad took the time to do something I loved to give me this amazing model train set. And every Christmas, we would bring it out, and it would stay up for weeks. And every year, he would add something. And I remember the years that we added tunnels and mountains, and we added all of the landscape and how that thrilled my heart as a kid. I'm going to do that for my sons, Lord willing, how that thrilled my heart. And yet, that wasn't a real train. There weren't real mountains. And and when I became an adult and I had the opportunities to take trains to the Alps and Germany and through France and through all of the real things of which those things were a model, I wasn't thinking about the model. I wasn't thinking about the shadow and the type. I was thinking about what they point to. Now, how foolish it would be if I had the opportunity for the real thing to say, no, 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 I I love the model. The model's the real thing. As an adult, as an old man, there's something very, very strange if you've ever met a man who's into toys. There are men that own toy shops that always raise my attention. I'm always like, I don't know if this is normal. Um, That would be very strange. That's what Israel did with the, that's what Israel did with the ceremonial laws. They didn't want the reality. Um, When Jesus came, Jesus was the only one that could interpret for them what all those things meant. And he came and he interpreted them and he said, look to me, these point to me, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He tabernacled among us, he came. On the Mount of Transfiguration, there was a cloud just like there was over the temple. And his face shone like the sun, just like the Shekinah glory in the most holy place. And Peter understood that something marvelous was happening. And he said, Jesus, let us make for you three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And the Holy Spirit says, not knowing what he said. And the point was, even the disciples didn't get that Jesus was interpreting for them in all that he taught and all that he did, that all that in the old covenant was preparing us for him. Now, why? Why would God give that? Why didn't God just send Jesus instantly into the world? Because what we're talking about this morning, the main point is so glorious and so great that God wanted to prepare us for it with things like the tabernacle and the temple, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, so that we could get our minds around the greatness of what we have in Jesus Christ. And so we're told here that we have a better priest. Notice that one of the other facets of the betterness of our priest is in verse 3, every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for Jesus to have something to offer, and, and he doesn't tell us what he offered here. He doesn't yet say, he's going to say this in the next chapter, he's going to say he offered himself. He didn't come with lambs and bulls and goats. He didn't go into the temple to sacrifice for us. He didn't go into any physical structure to be our priest. He came as the priest, as the sacrifice, as the temple, as the tabernacle, and he laid down his life on the cross. And when he did, he went to the altar and he became the burnt offering And just like the priest had sacrifices, he too had a sacrifice. And what the writer of Hebrews is going to tell us now, notice this in verse 4, is that our high priest, the Lord Jesus, is not an earthly priest. If I could, if there was a way to do spiritual uh, neurosurgery on you this morning, if I could open up your minds 
and I could do spiritual, neurological surgery on you and help you understand, and only the Holy Spirit can do this, that the Christian life is preeminently spiritual because Christ is not on earth, but he has gone into the presence of God and that he has gone to the right hand of the Father and to the true tabernacle and to the spiritual tabernacle. And that means everything we do is spiritual and not earthly. That's why our church doesn't do a lot of pomp and ceremony. Um, John Owen, I want to read this to you, uh, speaking about why Israel struggled so much not to come to Christ, but to trust in all those things. He says, um, the institutions in the Old Testament were so glorious that they were shadows of heavenly things. The people to whom they were given were carnal and they had to be intermixed with services that were hard to be born. Why, when we read the Old Testament, is it so burdensome? Do this, do this, now do this, now do, if you don't do this, this is going to happen. If you don't do this, and what Owen says is because the, the, the patterns, the mosaic legislation was a reflection of the heavenly things, and if it didn't feel burdensome, the people would trust in it, and they did trust in it. And notice what he says. He says, there are still many seeking after outward glory and carnal worship as though they had no view of the spiritual glory of the heavenly ministry of the gospel in the hand of Jesus Christ, our high priest. Listen, this is why people want to go to religious institutions that do the worship for them. It's why they want to go where there's externals. I think I've told you in the past there was a minister who uh, was in uh, the Episcopalian church that I grew up in and He said to me once, our people don't need more biblical teaching. They need more smells and bells. That is from an unregenerate heart that doesn't get the spiritual nature of the worship of Jesus Christ. If you are more enamored with external things, you need to submerge yourself in the truth of the book of Hebrews and especially here in Hebrews 8. And notice what he says. He says that our priest would not be a priest if he was here on earth. Because those priests had to offer things on an earthly level, typical things, animals, physical things, and our priest is in heaven at the right hand of God. And notice verse 6 where he sums up the first point, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as he mediates a better covenant enacted on better promises. Now, I don't understand why it's so hard for so many Christians to get the heavenly life. What it means to live as a spiritual being here and now, because Christ, when he went to heaven, he poured out his Holy Spirit. He he drew near in the Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. Nobody ever came to Jesus Christ through any external actions. Nobody ever came to Jesus Christ because they liked the beauty of the external reality of worship. No one. If anybody has ever told you they came to Jesus because they went into a church that had lots of externals and that they they knew they needed Jesus because of that, they have not come to Jesus. Because the gospel comes through hearing and Christ pours out the spirit into his heart and he lifts us up into glory, into the heavenly temple where he is. And our lives are then lived as spiritual beings on a spiritual plane. We live in a fallen world as those who belong to glory. This is why Paul can say our citizenship is in heaven. Why Paul can say 
that we're seated in the heavenly places in Christ. Even now, as you're in Richmond Hill, if you're a believer, you are united to Jesus and seated in the heavenly places in Christ. He has brought you through the veil into the temple, into the presence of God. And so, secondly, the writer tells us that all of this is because there's a better covenant. I said this last week that um, the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, they didn't do anything for the consciences of the people. If you were an Israelite and you went to the priest and you took the little lamb and you took the goat and you went through all of the ritual that God had prescribed and you, you walked away and you were hoping that that would somehow change you, you would be leaving with a conscience just as guilty, just as under the condemnation of the law, just as burdened with the transgressions and all of the sin that you have. And what the Bible says is that that covenant made nobody perfect, that all those externals could not change the heart. This is why we don't believe baptism saves you. Water baptism cannot change your heart. The baptism of the Holy Spirit changes the heart. Christ changes the heart. The working of the Spirit in the souls of men and women changes them. And notice that God promises all of that in the new covenant. Notice what he says. He says in verse 7, if the first covenant had been faultless, if it had been sufficient, we would still be Jews, wouldn't we? We would be converting to Judaism. We would be going to the temple. We would be going through all the rituals of what we read in the Torah. We would be doing all of that if it had been faultless. If the covenant God entered into with Israel, the law covenant, had been uh, efficacious and able to change you, it, it wouldn't have passed away. But God's purpose was never to change the people through it. He was going to change them through his son to whom it pointed. And so notice... Notice what he says. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for another. Now notice this. The blame wasn't in the tabernacle or the temple or the animals. That wasn't what God found fault with in that first covenant. Notice this. He finds fault with them. God finds fault with us. The problem is not the law of God. The problem is the sin that that law condemns. The sin in our hearts is the problem. The sin in Israel's heart, the guilt and the shame and the corruption and the rebellion and the hardness. How many times Israel said to God, we will obey everything that the Lord has commanded us. And like two minutes later, they're, they're having idolatrous orgies with Baal worship. I mean, like in the next breath, we're going to obey God. We're going to do everything God told us to do. And then they are worse than the nation's. Because that's what's in our hearts by nature. And the old covenant couldn't deal with that. It couldn't make the worshipers perfect. It couldn't cleanse them. It couldn't take away the guilt of their sin. And so notice what God says. God says, I am going to make a new covenant. I'm going to establish a new covenant. And that covenant is going to stand because of my son, Jesus Christ. I am going to make that covenant stand. I'm going to change the hearts of men and women. I'm going to write my law on their hearts. I'm going to forgive your iniquity, your transgressions, and your sins. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to bring you to me forever, and it's never going to be replaced. And it's going to have all the power and glory that you need because Jesus has all the power and glory that you need. And so the writer of Hebrews is going to tell us that the good news of the gospel is assured to us because we have a better mediator of a better covenant that will never be replaced, that has the power to change people and to do everything that we need done. And that that Jesus who is in the heavenly temple is the minister of a new and better covenant built on better promises. God has said, 
I will forgive your sins. And that law that stood against you, that law that stands against you if you're not in Christ, is silenced through the blood of Jesus. I don't know how much you've meditated on the pictures of the Old Testament, but uh, my favorite is the Ark of the Covenant because um, the Ark was that box in the most holy place. And um, what was kept inside that box, the the biggest thing was the, the Ten Commandments. The two tablets were put in that box. And what that represented was God's holiness and his righteousness. And we know as we read the scriptures that that means that that's going to stand against us because we've done so much wrong and that we're separated from God and that we can't dwell. We can't dwell in the presence of God and God can't dwell with us. God can't be with us because we're so sinful. And so God provides the remedy through the blood. And and remember on the ark when the priest went into the temple, where did he put the blood? He put it on the mercy seat, right over the box, the law being under the blood, and then God appeared, and God's presence appeared with his people. And what was being shown was that when there's the sufficient bloodshed, God no longer sees those transgressions. Do you know how sinful we are? Oh, do you know even a fraction of how sinful you are? Even a fraction of how rebellious and corrupt you are. If you knew how sinful I am, you would not have me in this pulpit listening to me. I promise you that. If I knew how sinful you were, I would want you out of this church by nature. (laughs) But there's a gospel. There's a new covenant. There's a God who has promised to work powerfully in his people to take away that sin, to pardon the guilt of that sin, to take away the shame of that sin, to reconcile us to himself, and then to write that law on your heart, not on tablets of stone, but on the hearts of his people, to make them love him, to make them love what is right. And you know what? The beauty of the new covenant is when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We have a mediator. We go back to him. We confess that sin. We know that that blood was sufficient because he was only offered once. We know that that covenant's never going to be replaced because God has said through the resurrection of Jesus, it is finished, it is done, I will bring you to myself. Your sins and your lawless deeds I will remember no more. Listen, there is no greater word in scripture than God saying your sin and your lawless deeds I will remember no more. There's no greater word than the infinitely holy God who is the judge of the living and the dead saying, if you are in my son Jesus, if he is your worship leader, you are accepted, you are washed, you are forgiven, you are cleansed, I will never bring up all the wrong. Let me talk to you this morning as we close. If you have a conscience that lives in terror because you know God's holy and you know how much you've done wrong, You need to know that you have a mediator in Jesus who is the mediator of a covenant that has taken away that guilt and shame. It's the gospel. The gospel is not God enabling you to be good enough to be saved. The gospel is God forgiving you when you were so bad you couldn't do anything and that all the worship ritual in the Old Testament couldn't change you and that you couldn't change yourself and that what you needed was God working in you through his son, Jesus Christ. 
and the privileges and the blessings. You know, this covenant is going to endure forever. That's one of the beautiful things is that heaven, heaven is going to be us experiencing the new covenant. You know, every Lord's Day when we worship, we are really experiencing the new covenant. That's why I called our church new covenant, by the way. I had a couple of Presbyterians say, why not call it covenant? Well, because I'm in the new covenant. That's why we don't call it covenant. <laughs> We're in the new covenant. And every Lord's Day, when we gather to worship, we are hopefully experiencing what the Apostle John experienced on Patmos. Remember, in the book of Revelation, it says that John was in the spirit on the Lord's Day and that he heard a loud voice behind him, and it was Christ. And then in chapter 4, it says he looked and he saw heaven open and that he saw angels and archangels and he saw a multitude too great to number of every tribe and tongue and people and language standing before the throne and before the lamb and crying out you are worthy for you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and that John was experiencing on the Lord's day what you ought to be experiencing every Lord's day I want to read to you the words of the hymn we sang. Let us wonder grace and justice, join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. He who washed us with his blood, he who washed us with his blood has secured our way to God. Let us praise and join the chorus of the saints enthroned on high. Here they trusted Christ before us. Now their praises fill the sky. You have washed us with your blood. You have washed us with your blood. You have washed us with your blood. You are worthy Lamb of God. That's what Hebrews 8 is about. That's the implication of Hebrews 8 for you. If you're in Christ, you are joining the chorus of those who have gone before us, and we are crying out together to the better mediator of a better covenant, you are worthy lamb of God. I hope that that's an encouragement to you to look to him more fully, to fix your eyes on him. That's the exhortation of Hebrews. Fix your eyes on him. Consider him. Look to him. Run with endurance to him. Hold fast to him. Know that he's an anchor for your soul and that you will sing praises in worship knowing that he is a better mediator in a better temple in an everlasting covenant that he's secured for you and that your sins and lawless deeds he will remember no more. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's everything. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let's pray. Oh God, our hearts are often cold and we often don't even see dimly and darkly through the glass. We often have our sight obscured from seeing your glory in the face of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray that you would make us to know the blessings of the new covenant in a way that we have not known them before. We pray, Father, that you would so work in us by your Spirit, forgiving our sins and our lawless deeds, uniting us to your Son, giving us deeper communion with him, making us to know your law written on our hearts, making us to know what it is to live a spiritual, redeemed people, the heavenly life while we make our pilgrimage here on earth. We pray that you would draw us to your son this morning, that you would draw us to him who is 
our better mediator who is seated at your right hand. We pray these things in his name. Amen.